Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. As much as they're formed by grand documents like the Declaration of Independence, human societies are made of countless small informal exchanges and agreements between people. You're right to expect me to cite a reliable source to support a statement like that, a sociologist or psychologist or political scientist, even a thoughtful bartender or barber would be better than a preacher, but I'm sorry. No experts were consulted in the formation of this opinion. It's just something that occurred to me as Ardell and I were deplaning last Tuesday at the Memphis International Airport. Like most of you probably, I haven't flown much lately, so the ordinary miracle of human beings exiting a commercial airplane seemed like a curious vestige of another time, one in which a surprisingly egalitarian form of chivalry is actually the rule. Remember how this works. When it's time to get off the plane, People don't stampede. No one comes flying around your blind side in the center aisle and cuts you off. People actually wait patiently for each other as the person in the next row extracts himself from that tiny seat, yanks the not-so-tiny carry-on that he's expanded to twice its original size and wedged into the overhead bin, extends its clattering handle, and then begins to make his way toward the smiling flight attendant at the open cockpit door. Row after row after row does this. It's a beautiful thing. And it may be the only empirical evidence we have that Western civilization is not about to collapse within the week under the weight of so much rudeness and selfish tribalism. So imagine my shock when the one person on the plane who didn't want to participate in this sacred rite was my wife. (laughs) It's true. As the plane began to empty, Ardell actually said to me, you know, we could just wait until everybody else got off. That's Ardell, rebel, anarchist, blithe puller on the last, on the social fabric's last unraveling thread. Worst of all, in the face of her patient calm, I was left to face my own compulsive need to get what's rightfully mine. It's true that we'd traveled to Memphis from the western edge of the United States that day, about 1,800 miles in all, and letting the people seated behind us go first might have added all of 10 minutes to that trip, but there is something bred into my bones that said you just can't let those people go first. (laughs) It's like letting someone merge when for any number of reasons you don't think they've suffered sufficiently enough in this line of traffic. You can't let these cheaters add What, another 50 whole feet to your commute? Do you recognize these feelings? Both the pleasure of even a small society of air travelers finding a way forward together, and also the simmering selfish resentments that I tell myself are about my unwavering commitment to justice, but are actually about my unwavering commitment to me. Well, these are glimpses, I actually believe, into how our moral selves are formed, for better and for worse, within the societies in which we live. We don't like to admit this. We 
We like to think of ourselves as independent beings, as captains of our own fate, or at least of our own souls and minds, but we're not, not completely. Our souls and our desires are constantly being formed and reformed in our life with other people. But guess what, friends? The same was true for Jesus. It really was. Even he developed as a moral self in both acceptance and resistance to the society that shaped him. I'm not sure there's a moment in the Gospels that needs less translation across cultures and centuries than Jesus' return to his hometown in Mark 6. Would you agree? We know how hometowns work. They can be lovely places where the best in us is formed in the simple norms and customs and relationships that make up our community They can also be places where fears and prejudices and insecurities all get baked into those same norms and customs as well. Actually, all societies are are both of these things at once in some measure. But let's look again at this story. Unlike the times Jesus stirred things up by healing, i.e. working on the Sabbath, in this story, he's just teaching in the synagogue, and a bunch of the people present were really impressed. So we hadn't broken any rules, per se. But some agreed upon order is clearly being disrupted by Jesus. One of those harder-to-articulate norms about who gets to say what, where. The response of the people around him is what's telling. We know they're threatened because they want to push him back into his assigned place within their little society. They, They remind him he's just a carpenter, He's not a scribe or a rabbi or otherwise official expert on these scriptures. Not only that, they they like to point out that he is not Joseph's, but Mary's son, which, which in a patriarchal culture was quite possibly a dig. One meant to remind everybody of that scandal that Mary's pregnancy was already underway when she and Joseph married. Why, some say the child wasn't Joseph's at all. We recognize this world, don't we? Norms and expectations and roles, rumors and family histories, they all exert an influence on who any particular person is, including Jesus. The people at that synagogue that day were offended. They knew this Jesus, and frankly, he was getting a little too big for his tunic. So they used all kinds of influences social creatures have to push back. Jesus responds to them with what seems to have been a known saying about prophets not being without honor except in their hometowns. Familiarity breeds contempt, is how Chaucer put it, more than a dozen centuries later. But the power of the scene is in this tension, isn't it? Jesus has gone back to the society in which he was formed, but he can't let himself or his redemptive mission be defined entirely by the vision of that society, can he? And yet, in what may be the most striking detail in the story, we hear that Jesus' healing power is not only his own. It is limited because it is bound up with the faith of these very people who both shaped him and are threatened by him. Jesus' healing power is, at least to some degree, socially determined. So even Jesus is not divinely free from these ordinary societal 
forces, is he? In fact, what we see him doing in the story next is struggling to stay true to a prior and higher commitment to the kingdom of God. And he then heads off to other towns and sends his apostles out two by two to continue this healing work. He sends them out with no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. He sends them out unprotected from the societies they were sent to serve. But he says, be careful. If you're not welcomed, leave that place. Don't let it form you in its ways if it's not open to the ways of God in at least the basic obligation to welcome a vulnerable stranger. Societies, you see, have always tried to put religion, even Jesus's, to use toward their own ends. Watch out for that, Jesus says. In 1905, a German named Max Weber wrote, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. If you're like me, you might have had a vague sense that this Protestant ethic was about how industrious and hard-working Protestants were, especially as industrial capitalism was taking shape in Europe. That's not untrue, but Weber coined the term because he was confused about it. Remember, if only through a Dickens novel or two, that people didn't actually just step out of feudalism and into the bright light of freedom and prosperity. There were no child labor laws or 40-hour work weeks. And Weber wondered how in the world all these desperately poor people were convinced to work so hard for such meager portions of the spoils of these new economies. There weren't great options available to them, but there were other options. And not only did there not seem to be financial incentives to work so hard, Weber was especially curious about the Calvinist countries where capitalism uh, grew most quickly. The Reformation had supposedly done away with the system by which good works in the form of indulgences and such, are what get a person into heaven, right? So that can't be the motivation. But Calvinists in particular hadn't just set aside the Pope. They, they believed in double predestination. That is, they believed that whether you're going to heaven or whether you're going to hell has been determined by God before you're even born. Now you might think a theological system like that would produce the opposite of ethically upright, hard-working people. I mean, if it's all been determined, why try to be good? Why try at all? But here's what Weber said actually happened. The Calvinists believe that one's salvation has already been determined, but the evidence that a person's one of the elect should be visible in their lives. Specifically, you could tell whether someone was saved by how selfless and hard-working that person was especially when that hard work produced very little in the way of earthly reward. So here were all these Calvinists, working themselves sometimes literally to death because their lives needed to look like the lives of people whom God had already chosen for heaven. It was as if the Reformation took the keys to heaven from the priests and handed them to the leaders of industry. There were challenges to Weber's theory, of course. But I really don't have to look any further than the mixed motives that swirl around in me to see that he was on to something, something very important. And that is that all societies, from, from the smallest of towns to great, great nations, 
will use religion to achieve their own ends. I think that's what was happening in Jesus' time when he met that resistance in his hometown. Christian theologians today, like Catherine Tanner, are asking Christians to look again at how the societies and economies we live in now are forming us and even ask us to understand Jesus' teaching on their terms rather than the other way around. Which means that you and I, if we're to be faithful to Jesus, must struggle to ground our deepest identity in His way, in His truth, in His life. Even as we acknowledge that we're social creatures, dependent on the people and culture and society in which we live even as we acknowledge that Jesus' own healing, redeeming work took place within all the relationships and norms and customs that formed him, some of which he cherished, some of which he challenged. And so on this beautiful 4th of July in Memphis, maybe you and I could pause and pray for the sake of an America we love, to be American Christians who are faithful first to the way of Jesus, a struggle that even Jesus understood. We could pray to be people who not only remind one another, but actually enact rites and rituals, norms and practices that help us see other human beings as creatures whose worth and dignity are the gift of God, not proved by their performance, whether in churches or economies or airplanes or anywhere else. And maybe we could begin by simply looking up and into the eyes of the next friend or relative or stranger we encounter, especially the one with no bag, no bread, no money in her belt, imagining that she's been sent to us by Jesus to see if there's any welcome left for her in our world, but also to save us, sent to heal us, sent to call us back to lives grounded first in the way of Jesus, which is the only life for which you and I were truly made. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.